I remember when I turned 26. Yes, I can remember 11 years ago. Um, I was three years married, um, and we were, uh, I was working at a company called Paypoint. And it's a financial company, and basically we were the in-between guys um, that people could come to stores and pay their bills, and we would take just a little bit of money off each bill, because that's how you work. And uh, we had 30,000 sites around the UK, and I'd started off in the call center of being like a technical person. So you know those wonderful first jobs you get, where you get reamed out by people because something doesn't work, and you're like, I'm trying to help you. And you had all different types of people from different cultures. So sometimes it was really hard to understand what they were saying. So I kind of became more bilingual in those spaces. Um, it was the reversal. I was speaking to someone who was from India, and I was the English person. So we were trying to do like the reversal, we were trying to help them. It was great. It was fantastic. The, the things that got said to me were beautiful. Um, but over the years, we, I was there for three years, and I was like trying to kind of climb the ladder. I'd got kind of like bored of what I was doing. We were full-time kind of like almost in church life in England heading up the worship team and just really loving church life, but you, you don't get paid for volunteering work in England. Like you just kind of work as hard and you don't get anything. And so, uh, so we were just working for the church, loving the church, but also working the job. And I was in that stage of life where I just was trying to work out what God was calling to me, who I was, and all that kind of wonderful things that were going on. And uh, there, I, I tried for a couple of job opportunities from like team lead stuff. And it just didn't work out. If I had that, you go for a promotion, and it, every time, no, it didn't work out. Went through the, the kind of um, application process, the interview process, and every time it was just, no, no. And the third time it had gone by, no. And I was like, God, like, what are you doing right now? Like, I don't get, I'm, I'm here in this space. It feels really awkward. And I remember in that moment, like literally a couple of months later, and so I just kind of like turned 26, there was this opportunity for a manager's role, which was even higher, up in another space, another area of work, a completely different sect of this business. And uh, my manager came up to me and said, you should really go for this role. And I was like, no, no way. Like, I've got no managerial experience. Yeah, I went to a leadership college, but that was Bible college. Who even knows if we're really leaders? Like, you know, um, what are we even developing in that space? Um, and I just have no idea about those systems. It makes no sense for me to go, just, just, just go for it, see what happens. And it's one of those moments where you're just like, well, Holy Spirit, like, I really need you in this space. Like, there is no way this is even possible. Like, I've been let down by all these kind of lower positions. You're asking me for something bigger, which makes zero sense to me. And so I go through the application process. Um, we go through uh, some competency things. We go through um, some challenges together, which is always interesting. You're doing like team building stuff with the people you're against. So that's kind of interesting. Then you had like, uh, you had to demonstrate your vision and uh, what you thought was going to be for the team. Again, I was like, Holy Spirit, please help me in this moment. Like, I have no idea about the vision for the team. Like, I don't know them. Like, how am I going to do this? And so, God, just give me the words. And then I had a one-on-one -on -one interview with my new manager that would be. And so I went through the whole process thinking, well, this is a really great experience. And I, I rocked up. A couple of weeks later, we each get invited into the room. And I got told, you have the job. And it was mind blown in that moment. Have you ever experienced that where you're just like, there is no way. And then suddenly there was a way. <laughs> and you were just like, what now? And it was funny, quickly in that moment, the Holy Spirit kind of reminded me, do you think it was anything to do with you? 
And kind of that wonderful humbling moment of just like, well, actually, yeah, it doesn't make sense because all the other candidacies were either in the team. So that was really fun trying to manage a team who you just won the job over. So that was a whole dynamic I had to kind of work through. But also other people who were older than me, it just, I was the least experienced, least capable of the job, yet got the job. And the Holy Spirit just said, you think that was because of you? And I said, no, no way did I have that. Because our powerlessness will drive us to a power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point I really want to make today. Our powerlessness drives us to the power of the Holy Spirit. We're reminded thereafter the nights holding Alicia when she was in the hospital, we have uh, six years on now celebrating where she is healed, transformed. But in that moment, yeah, amen, like she is transformed. She is a go-getter. She is amazing. Um, but I'm reminded of those nights where I'd hold her with wires all over her head, just not knowing what to think, Googling bad things, but worshiping at the same time, saying, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you. Even this week while I was preparing this message, just really kind of sick and just like, Holy Spirit, I need you. Every time I step up to preach, it's Holy Spirit, I need you. And do we have that in our lives where we're being stretched, where our powerlessness drives us to the Holy Spirit? So we're in a series, uh, a year-long phrase of demonstrating the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the restoration of this world, but how? And so we've been looking at characteristics of the Holy Spirit. We uh, looked at, so Pastor Craig kicked us off that he's a person. Joe was talking about he's someone that we walk with. And last time, before Easter, uh, we looked at Holy Spirit as water. The Bible is full of metaphors of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was water. And the beautiful thing is when the Holy Spirit interacts with water, which was originally chaos, it then became a place, flourishment of life. It wasn't rid of, but it was transformed to hold the kingdom. And that's the whole premise of last time, that the Holy Spirit as water transforms our lives. It redeems us, and it causes us to be the life-filling, healing to the nations of this world. Amen? It's a good word. And so that we have that Holy Spirit inside of us. And so I want to carry on with the metaphors. And so today we're going to look at the Holy Spirit as a metaphor as the dove. And so we're going to go straight to the passage here. Luke, Luke 21, 22 says this. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. They were torn in, uh, in the Greek, which is a beautiful word because when you tear something, you're not going to put it back together. So we have open heavens. Let me just put a little word in there to you. You don't need to contend for the presence of God. It is here. We just need made aware of it. We don't need to contend for it to be. It has been ripped open. It's the same word opened as the word where the temple uh, uh, veil, thank you very much, was torn from top to bottom. That is the same word. And we live in that very matter of fact. So it's a beautiful promise right there. And the Holy Spirit descended on him uh, bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came saying, You are my beloved son with all whom I am well pleased. And so this is uh, a narrative that we want to do. I follow through just the theme, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. How we read the Bible is narrative form for the most part, lots of other different styles. But there is this continuous theme throughout all of Scripture in small stories and large creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we can follow this theme of the Holy Spirit as a dove through this. And so we start with the story of Genesis. We go back to this 
over and over again, you will get sick of this, but it's good. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the beautiful uh, imagery here. But actually, it covers even more, because the Gospels all have the baptism in it, and they also all refer to the dove descending on Jesus. So why do they even have that imagery in their mind from the first point? Well, it's because of this passage. They're all trying to pull you back to a narrative from the very beginning of why they are trying to bring Jesus, the descending of the dove upon Jesus as a dove because of this and what happens in this moment. The cool thing is, is that, well, not so cool, but at the same time it's what it is. Um, when the Jewish people were exiled from Babylon, they lost their native language of Hebrew, and they became Aramaic. And so in the Aramaic, the uh, Talgum scripture actually says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters like a dove. And so these young Jewish boys would have grown up with the, the Talgum saying that. And so they're wanting to usher back, as soon as a Jewish person would read this scripture, they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're saying that creation is happening again. You're saying that as this dove descended upon Jesus, that there is a new life that is happening. But also what I love about this is the hovering. The hovering that happens over is uh, rahof in the Jewish words. And that means also can mean brooding over eggs. So imagine this. The Father speaks, let there be light. The Son, Jesus, is the word that goes. And then the Holy Spirit broods over the words, over the waters. And it causes the fertilization of the word, of the eggs. It breaks out into all creation. I love how the Trinity works together. Because that is what the Holy Spirit does. It brings empowerment of life. So if we need a metaphor for the dove, just hold this today in your mind. The dove is an empowerment of new life. Wherever the dove hovers, wherever the dove broods over, it is cultivating new life. It is empowering new life. But wonderfully, as humans, uh, we do a great job as always. And uh, the fall comes about because we desire our own power. We desire to know what God knows. We desire to be God. And so we want to have the power for ourselves, which removes God's presence from our lives. And it removes the working of the Spirit inside of us. And so Adam and Eve go out from the garden. But even in the fallen state, God moves on his people. He causes this resting to come on people, upon Moses, upon Joshua, upon the judges, Samuel, David, Saul, prophets, men and women alike. Still, the Spirit was resting upon people for a momentary basis to cause people to be greater than they ever were, to cause them to be more to cause transformation in Israel over and over again. The promises of Ezekiel, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, of this new covenant to come. And so then we come and find ourselves in the redemption of Jesus Christ. This beautiful passage that Luke talks about. And Luke's all about the Holy Spirit. And so he jumps in at 135 and says, this is Mary, and the angel answered, how on earth is this going to come? And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Isn't that beautiful language? Again, that dissension, that dove-like language. And overshadows you. You can imagine the wings 
brooding over what's inside of Mary and cultivating this new life. And so there's a story of redemption that's coming alive, an action of redemption that means that God and man have come together to birth something brand new. It's a new creation. Our Savior is born. But it wasn't just a restoration of closeness that Jesus wanted to bring. I mean, it would have been all well and good to have the Messiah, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, to come and live on this earth and space and just kind of walk around and say, hey, I'm God. But that wasn't Jesus' life. I mean, Jesus could have come as the perfect lamb and sacrifice to atone for our sins. And often as Christians, we just live with that perspective, that he came and died for my sins. And actually, it's something more powerful. It wasn't just the closeness. And Luke's going to pick up on that. So when we come back to um, the baptism, what happens straight after Jesus is baptized? What's that? God speaks, exactly. And that is a beautiful promise of my son who's well pleased. And then after he affirms him, what happens to Jesus straight after that? Descends. And then after that? Wilderness, thank you very much. By the Spirit. And this is what Paul's going to go, sorry, Paul, Luke is going to go crazy on this. He said, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, straight after the wilderness experience. And Jesus returned in the power, notice the switch, full of the Holy Spirit. We'll come to this later. And then returned in the power of the Spirit and to Galilee, and report about him and through all the surrounding country. And so Jesus is about to announce his kingdom, and so he comes into the first kind of uh, synagogue, uh, the church experience, the Sabbath. He would have come in and preached, and he had the opportunity to pick any scroll he wanted to announce his messiahship, any scroll he could have picked, and he picked Isaiah. And so he quotes from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed. Yes, I know it's a good word, Johnny. It's awesome. It's okay. My soul is slowly shrinking inside, but it's okay. 37 years, I can still keep going. It's good. That's a good word. Isn't it funny that we're living in this space again, that Jesus could have been the Messiah that just came and died and rose again. But no, he's someone who's spirit-empowered. He's someone that's got life inside of him, and that life is transforming other people. And he's healing, and he's breaking the captives free. He's not only restoring the closeness of me and you, of God and uh, us and all of creation, but he's actually empowering a person in Jesus to be an example for us, to be transformation to us. And so I just want to pause on that very fact for a moment because there is something that we don't realize that we live under. How did Jesus do what he did? How did Jesus do what he did? Now, a lot of times there are two answers that get given, but mostly we in this period of time lean on this one, It's proof that he was God, is often the answer that we give. Jesus did what he did because he was God. 
But this wasn't always the answer that we would give throughout Christendom history. And it's really only because of the Enlightenment period in 17th century where we had that shift and change. See, we became a little smarter. We began to see the world operated differently. Um, Before the Enlightenment, so 1600s, we would have woken up and said, God has given us a brand new day. The sun has risen. We can thank God. God has caused the sun to rise, which is partly untrue because he's put things in motion. But now it's kind of shifted. Well, the earth is moving at 1,000 miles an hour, spinning around, moving at 47,000 miles around the sun. And so you are a small little uh, insignificant little person on this big earth that's spinning around, and that's why we see the sun rise. And, and so we had this divide that happened natural and supernatural. We said this is a natural example that happens, and therefore we have supernatural activities. And so this divide started to happen as we started to explain more and more things that happen. There is natural, there is supernatural. One of the most famous people, Thomas Jefferson, which you guys know well, um, deism started to form. So between Christendom and atheism, deism began to come about. These people that believed that God was kind of this far-off person that had no interaction with the world. He kind of made things, but then left it as it was. And so deism began to come in, and Thomas Jefferson removed all the miracles from the Bible. And there was this growing sect that happened, and Christians, as we do so well, began to freak out. We freak out pretty well. And so what happened was we decided you can't remove the miracles. And so what we decided to do was the miracles prove that God, that Jesus is God. And so this whole mindset came around that Jesus was God, which he is, fully God, fully man. And that was the only way that he could do miracles. But that doesn't deny the fact that Moses did miracles, Elijah did miracles, other people did miracles and did not call themselves Messiah. And so we've got to disprove that, that Jesus didn't come to prove that he was God. He was pretty happy not proving himself. Please don't tell people I just healed you. Um, you want me to do a miracle? No chance. In fact, I'm just going to give you a crazy metaphor of Jonah in the three days, and you've got to work it out. I don't care about wanting your miracles. He knew that the 5,000 had caused such a ruckus that he ran away, and he knew when they come to find him out, what they really wanted was not his knowledge or his lordship. They just wanted his bread. Like, that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus didn't do what he did to prove that he was God. No, the second is more true. The proof of a breaking in kingdom of God. The good news for the poor, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, healing for the sick, salvation for the lost, a life empowered by the Spirit is why Jesus came to this earth. Not only to reconcile us, but to empower us. Um, Acts Luke, again, he's the author of Acts. He's the part two, and he did a pretty good job at part two. Part twos aren't very good normally, but this is a pretty good job. And so part two, the sequel comes in, and Acts 10 quotes this, verse 37 to 38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went out doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's a difference. It's not that he was God, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because Luke wants you to understand this very truth, that a spirit that is a dove is empowering you to be a transformation. And so this brings us to the final part, restoration. 
So God has redeemed us. He has caused this model to come about. Jesus was the truest home for the Holy Spirit ever inhabited. Jesus was the truest home for the Holy Spirit ever inhabited. Why? Because Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to be completely himself. I want you to capture that today. Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to be completely himself. And there's a difference, you know, going over to a random person's home and going over to your family's, right? Like, when I go to someone's home, especially when I take my kids to someone else's home, be behaved, right? <laughs> Don't do that. Keep your shoes on. Listen to what they're saying. Da, 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 da. Like, you are on best behavior. But as soon as you come to your families, it's kick the shoes off, lie down on the couch. Hey, mom, what's for dinner? Like, what have you got going on in the fridge? I was back home and I was back to my teenage self. Mom, what have you got in the fridge? Just raiding food for myself. Mom, can you take me here and there? Because I haven't driven in England for a while and I couldn't be bothered to rent a car. And so I had this kind of idea of just restoration. Like, I was perfectly at home. I was allowed to be fully who I was. And so how are we as the Holy Spirit? Jesus performed what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to be perfectly himself. He modeled that. And then he goes on in Acts about the restoration. Now, the Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And Jesus, before he ascends, he says this, but you in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this redemption is moving to restoration. Now that I have shown you what it looks like to be a redemptive work. I want you to be the restorers. And it's interesting, this word witness shows up. Now, when I say witness, a lot of people normally think, oh, I'll be a witness by telling people about Jesus. But this is not really what it's about. Yes, telling about Jesus, but it's the acts. The actions of the peoples, of the miracles, of the signs and wonders that actually cause people to witness. To bear witness means to show people the power and the works of Jesus Christ. And then we have Acts 2 that happens where the Spirit of God falls on the people on the day of Pentecost and suddenly there came from heaven like a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Imagine the wings of a dove flying, brooding down onto his people and were filled the entire house, stirring and divided tongues appeared upon them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So again, if the Holy Spirit brooded, came upon Mary, and what birthed? The Messiah. This time the Holy Spirit comes and broods over people and the church is birthed. That's the restoration that's happening. And it's beautiful because now a lot of people, again, we're going to get onto this kind of stuff. They're like, well, you should speak in tongues if you're filled with the Spirit. It's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is undoing uh, so if Genesis 3 is our failing, Genesis 6 is heaven's failing. It's where heaven decided to go its own way. There were two separations of the kingdom of God that happened. When we decided we wanted to separate from God, Genesis 3, by eating the apple. Genesis 6, sons of man, angels, decide to come into women and bear children. And so Babel came out where the voices of many different, and the curse that came, many different voices, many different uh, languages came. And so what happened? The Spirit brought unity. All the tongues and everyone understood one another. You're speaking in my tongue. We're undoing a curse. We're transforming something right now. Do you get that this morning? 
That might have been a little deep for some of you, and I'm sorry, come speak to me afterwards, but I just want to throw that in again. We're going to be talking more about what the spiritual activities are, but I just want to just realign some people's thoughts. The Spirit of God is not a manifestation solely of the tongue, speaking in tongues. It is a great gift, I love it, but it is not the manifestation solely of the Holy Spirit inside of them. Okay? Good. Just to give you that. And you can email me, whatever. Um, that would be good as well. And so the story takes off, right? Miracles happen, signs and wonders, prisons uh, shaken, divisions of people, Jews and Gentiles come together as one, equality of slavery, given women given more of a voice, like the kingdom of God is reigning. People were not without. This just beautiful expression of unity came alive. And just this phrase that summarizes it all. It was ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. It's the summary of Acts. Ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. The two passages that we read at the beginning, the same power that conquered the grave now lives inside of you. And in John, the night that Jesus goes, before the night he goes to the cross, whoever believes in me will do greater. Now, I don't know what greater is, but it's certainly not less. God will do more. Whatever that more is, whether it's intensity, whether it's just more, this kingdom is going to grow more and more. And I love the whoever believes in me will do greater works through the Spirit. So it's not just the apostles. It's certainly just not the pastors. It's not the super spiritual. It's whoever believes. Now, I know that you're all thinking, does my experience match that life of Jesus? And suddenly all this condemnation comes upon us. These questions come in mind. I love this thought um, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a revivalist Welsh guy. He's really cool. And he says this, if we have what the first Christians had, why do we not do what they did? Great question. We must conclude that either God gave them more than what was given to us, or we have failed to avail ourselves to what has been given to us. So where's the power? Where's, where's the power? Think about the story of um, the prodigal son in Luke 15. And I think many of us live in this space, if we're honest. Um, we've gone away from God. Uh, we've done it our own way. We've spent our own inheritance money or whatever that looks like. We've come to a realization that I need Jesus, and I've come back to the Father, and I said, Father, I need you. Let me just come into your house. And we've ended the story there. And we've left the fact that the Father longs to give us sandals to eliminate our slavery, robes to call us part of the family, and an authority of a ring that gives us authority in his house. We have denied the gifts and that's prevalent in the story, right? It wasn't just like you're back in my house. No, I've elevated you back to where you're supposed to be. But we haven't taken hold of the gifts. So where's the power? Quickly, just seven things. What gets in the way of the power of the Holy Spirit? And maybe you might find yourself in one of these. And I would just even ask that the Holy Spirit just speak to your heart. What's the one thing that you feel like you need God, to arrest in your heart for the spirit of power to come alive as we just go through these. So the first off the top, trapped in learning, not living in practice. Knowing feels our need for safety and certainty. 
Remember last week, the message was trusting beyond knowing. Our biggest problem is that we make everything certain. That's, that's Greek. We're Greek-influenced people. We need to know. I need to know what uh, is happening before I take that step. I need insurances to take that step. Like America, guys, we have so much insurance. Like I have insurance on dogs, pets, and all that good stuff. Like just to have, to know, I've got Google. I need to know, and some of you really wrestle, I need to know. But the trap is, knowing is never ending. You can never know enough if you don't move forward. And so we become armchair supporters. You know, those fans, those super fans who can play the game better than the actual athletes? You know those people? Maybe you're one of them. I was shouting at the TV yesterday, and Rachel kindly said, I'm thankful my dad didn't watch sports growing up. (laughs) And so, you know, it's what it is. I was going in. I'm teaching my son the way of following my team, which is painful, because it's one moment brilliant and then absolutely dismal the next, and I'm shouting at the screen, come on, where was the pass? What are you doing? Like I could do any better in that moment having 60,000 people watch me. But I become an armchair critic. I am all talk but no power. And this again, this sermon is counterintuitive. You're trying to take truths and never put it into practice. And so the first challenge we must be is people who want to experience the power. And you can walk out of Sunday and just carry on doing your life. Remember, you can walk in the Spirit fine until it doesn't work. And a lot of us have created theology around life without the Spirit, good morality, just being good people, but we lack the power. Your moral truth will not convince your friends there is a Lord, but signs and wonders, healings, a spirit inside of you that looks completely different to your life. Practicing the Holy Spirit, that will look different. Number two, lack of expectation. Um, We have an expectation that's pretty low, and I wonder if Jesus walked about our lives what he would think. A lot of us just hope to get through the week rather than thrive. And I think, honestly, Jesus weeps because he knows the gifts inside of us. There is so much more inside of you. I have given you the power that conquered the grave. And there are lots of stories and narratives that are contending for your truth. I would say your truth because that's subjective right now. We all have a truth. It's not the truth. And so we are constantly bombarded by that truth constantly. it's changing our expectancy and that's why gathering on Sundays is so important that's why I say guys Sunday mornings I know it's not we're not Sunday central we're not trying to say like if you don't come to church you're a bad person but man do you need help I need help like if I'm constantly every day in this and I struggle then I don't know how the heck any of you do it if you don't read this every day I don't know how you're doing life and expecting to have an expectation of God for your life like way up there. And you're like, God, where are you? It's like, well, what are you doing? Where is your expectation? And so a lot of that, I wonder if Jesus weeps. Disqualified by shame. Now, when I said whoever believes will do greater works, that whoever is, yeah, nice thought, but I'm still working on it. Whoever, yeah, that's the person next to me. Whoever, that was my grandma. Um, whoever that's, you know, super spiritual, whoever you've got in your mind right now, that's for them. And so we miss out because we disqualify ourselves because I've got shame in my life. 
I know that I'm not living the life that I am, and, and I just and the enemy comes and stabs in, right? He starts drilling in. You're not who you're meant to be. This message just shows that you're not a good Christian. Are you even really saved? The thoughts start to come into your mind, and the shame takes over. But can I tell you something today? It's the fact that our brokenness is actually our qualification. Can you imagine an unbroken Peter on Pentecost? You know, loud mouth, put it in your fist. Like, you know, can you imagine him filled with the Spirit? That would be dangerous. Like that wonderful speech that he gives, opening up here, quotes Joel, and he gives these wonderful accountants of God, and 3,000 people would save. I think even with the power of the Spirit, there would be a challenge. Because he would probably say something stupid. He would probably try and do something stupid. He would try and build a temple around this 3,000-person moment, and he would probably try and keep it contained because Peter knows best. But a broken Peter with the Spirit, because Peter's, I'm nothing, right? I have a living hope, and that's about all I've got, the opening letter of Peter. He denies himself, and he becomes the perfect ground for the Holy Spirit to reside in and to be fully the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people are saved on that day. Jesus qualifies the unqualified. He doesn't qualify. You know, we self-qualify, but he qualifies the unqualified. Number four, unrepented sin. The Holy Spirit convicts. I don't convict. I create space for the Holy Spirit to convict. Uh, and it's never for shame, but it's for more. Our sin, so missing God's best for our life, is always a limitation of what God wants to do in your life. God desires for you to live fully alive, but sin causes us to limit that. And so unrepentant sin actually limits our life. It limits us, our ability. And so when you have that conviction, shame is not an action. God just wants more for your life. He just wants you to live more fully alive. And so when he brings that conviction in your life, it's so you can live fully alive. Number five, low endurance to disappointment. Uh, John Wimber, an amazing guy in the 1980s, said this, we watched thousands die, but we finally got one. There had been a prayer movement of praying for healing after healing after healing after healing. They saw so many die, but finally they got one. And then it changed everything. I think a lot of times we have a low endurance to disappointment. As soon as one failure happens, well, that just wasn't meant to be. That just wasn't meant to happen. And so following the Spirit involves risk. And I love the, the analogy that we heard a lot. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. Like faith is spelt risk. And it involves wonder. Like we are to captivate the wonder of Jesus in our lives. But it also involves disappointment. If you're a Christian and you're not disappointed, then you're not living the faith. Like I'm pretty sure Jesus was disappointed with his followers. And so disappointment is the regular part of our lives. But will we create endurance against the disappointment? Self-centeredness. Supernatural power is driven by sacrificial love. Supernatural power is driven by sacrificial love. Supernatural power by sacrificial love. In Acts, whenever you saw the miracles happen, community drove together. Over and over again, it was like, and there was healings, and there was a gathering. There was miracles, and there was community. It was always for the purpose of 
love. But a lot of times, and this is maybe a critique of some uh, ministries out there, and I, I grew up in some of this, and this is where we got a little wacky, because the signs and wonders were just an end in themselves. I just want to experience the hype Jesus. I want to get all the good feelings. I want to see the signs and wonders, and that's where it ended. And that's why that movement is dying out, because it's like not having the water flow out. It's just self-service. It's just, Jesus, give me my fill, and it never flows out to experience love to another person. It never transforms you. And what Joe said, it doesn't become a fruit of the Spirit. It just becomes me fruit which is lust, self-centeredness. It's the self-gratification kind of love. And God is so graceful. He brings power. He is so graceful and patient. There are movements that have spent years just gathering on Sunday mornings just to feel Jesus and then be horrible people outside the four walls. But Jesus still performs miracles because he's got a power in spirits. So we've got to make sure that it's not self-centered. And finally, the comfortability of apathy. There's a difference between a soldier that's at war and a soldier that's in a barrack. Soldier who's war doesn't have time for menial gray area arguments. They know they're in a war and they need to be on guard. They need to be cultivating their heart. They need to be ready at any moment to fight. But a soldier in a barrack would be someone who would complain about his bed mattress. He would complain about the food that was being offered because suddenly there was time. And the lie of the enemy, and I think this is the greatest lie of the enemy that comes against us, is our comfortability. He likes to tell you that actually you're safe, you're okay, and you just slowly fall into lukewarmness. And for some of you, you need to wake up to the apathy that the, the, the enemy is trying to woo you into. And so how do we become the truest home for the Holy Spirit? Johnny, what do I do about this? Well, one simple takeaway, if we went back to Luke, again, the question, what did Jesus do as soon as he was full of the Holy Spirit? He went into the wilderness. He went into the Eremos in the Greek. And so whenever you see desert, wilderness, uh, the quiet place, it's all the same word, the Eremos. And it's the quiet place that we find power. But it's not a physical location it's a heart posture. A life of power is a people yielded hearts. A people of power is a people with yielded hearts. Jesus went not just to get away and have his Zen time. He didn't go away to get mindful. He didn't go away to practice yoga or any of that good stuff. No, Jesus went to fast. He went about removing the things to be able to still himself so that he could be a vessel for the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times fasting is not about getting power. A lot of times people try and fast to try and get God's approval, or they try and get power. Fasting is not about getting power. It's about becoming a clear channel for the Holy Spirit. Yielded hearts or desires. If the limiting of Spirit's power, we could have refined those seven down to one word, and that's control. All of these seven principles are based on control, if you think about it. Um, trapped in learning and not living in practice, I control my environment. I learn until I'm ready to go and practice this. Lack of expectation, 
I don't want to let myself down, so I control my expectations. I will lower my expectations. Disqualified by shame. A lot of people use shame as kind of like a crutch that helps them, and it controls their world. Well, I, I don't need to do anything because I just have this on me. Unrepentant sin. It's a given. Low endurance to disappointment. I can't be bothered to keep running the race. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to control my world. Self-centeredness, it's a given. Comfortable apathy, that's a given. And so control would be the word. And so to undo control, fasting is one of the great experiences that we have in our worlds. There's many different kinds of fasting, media fasting, food fasting. You know, there is fasting that says that, God, I want to be a clear channel for the Holy Spirit to come and fulfill my life. Because the reality is you're too full. You're not actually empty, but you're too full. You're too full of the things of this world. The Netflix and binge. It's the, all the different foods that we try and consume. It's the things that we want here and now, just filling. And it never satisfies, right? I mean, I'm caught in it all the time. That's the funny thing. When I do food fasts, I get really bored. And I just find I'm eating or wanting to eat just because I've got nothing to do. And even when we do media fast, we suddenly realize how much time is consumed by those things because we're just trying to get quick hits. I don't want to have to work at anything. We have this attitude of like, I have to really work at this. Like, I love my next day delivery Amazon Prime. Like, I love that I've got Netflix and I can watch the whole show here and now. And it's funny, when me and Rach watch shows, we have little arguments about this. She's like, can't we watch the next episode? No, no, we are only watching one. One episode, and we deny ourselves the, 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 the joy of binge-watching episode after episode after episode. Like, it's just a spiritual practice for me. I will say no to my flesh. I appreciate me watching the show anyway, but, you know, small mediums here and there. Um, but it's that denying the yielding of my desire that is the focal point. It is the central part. If that's what the power was for Jesus to overcome the enemy, how much more do we need it for yielding power in our lives? Remember, he went in full of the Holy Spirit. On the other side, he was powered. And it was at that point he did all his miracles. There's no stories of little Jesus walking on water or doing all other cool tricks and up his sleeve. It was that. And so let me land this here today. Um, we want to be people who are transforming people, transform your worlds. Now, this is just one step. But already you're like, Johnny, tried it, failed. It just doesn't seem to work. Like, I've tried this, I've heard this preached before, and it just fails. My invitation is always try again. But something much more deeper I feel like we need to keep on harking on about here. Help us grow together. You cannot do the 168 hours of this week by only spending 102 hours of your week here and expecting your life to be transformed. And so we, and, and just the leadership team, we believe that growth of our church is not butts on seats, but it's actually people doing the work of the kingdom. And you can't grow by yourself. Jesus did not create a platform that was by itself. Hey, follow these teachings, go work it out for yourself and go do it. No, it was always two by two he sent them out. It was in 12, really difficult 12. Wasn't an easy 12. Polar opposite thought processes, right? Doing life together, rubbing each other the wrong way. When you didn't like something, you didn't get to leave. You stuck it out with them. You carried on growing with them. And so I would love for you at the end just to even take some minute survey Give us the information that will help us to equip you because we want to create and be an equipping church. 
We want to create followers of Jesus. And I love it. Live like Jesus. That's your reminder for today. How are you living like Jesus today as you go outside here today? How quickly do we suddenly just boil over at the person we love most? That's the great test. Will you get to be perfectly yourself? How angry do you get? How quickly do you get angry? How quickly do you not serve the ones that are closest to you? When those are the greatest ministry points of our lives. And challenge for me, right? Preaching to myself first. And I believe that we will become a community. And the great joy that I'm going to have here is that you're going to do these things, but then you're going to teach other people. This is not for you just to suddenly be like, got my course done, checked. This is like, no, I'm inviting you guys to be people who equip other people. I'm doing myself out of the job. It'd be great if I didn't have to pass the people. How good would that be? I'm just like, guys, that pastor's so dang lazy. I was like, yeah, I know, right? It's like, um, we equip people to be who they're called to be. And if the mandate of discipleship was make disciples of all cultures, nations is not an accurate, no, like cultures. Don't think physicality, think cultures. All cultures. If that's what all of us are called to, then we need to do this together. But the beautiful thing is you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have a spirit that conquered the grave. Um, I mean, some of you needed to wake up from the grave this morning. Um, you know, the coffee wasn't quite enough, and so you're here. Um, for you watching online, maybe that was a little too hard. The grave really did overtake you. Um, but we have the power of Jesus Christ inside of us. And so just to, and there's music playing. If you guys could just let the music play. Um, we just want to be purposeful and just resting here in this message. Not to rush on to the next thing, but just to quickly let the Holy Spirit, <laughs> which is a funny phrase right there, quickly. Um, just rest in the Holy Spirit right there.